righteousness, corrects our issues. This morning we'll begin chapter 13 here in our journey through Luke's Gospel. On the study that I've entitled, Repentance and Restoration. Now I know that as we would talk one with another, that none of you have issues of being judgmental ever. That you don't, you know, pick out other people's faults or weaknesses or maybe look at someone else's dire condition of sin and compare it to your own kind of, sort of, maybe I might be sinning thing. None of you would ever do that. If we're honest, almost all of us have a tendency to think that we're more holy than we really are. Amen? I think if we're honest, we have to say amen to that. Because here's why. It is very tempting to look at other people's lives, their issues, their problems, their stuff, and say, you know, compared to them, I'm doing really good. And here's how we know that. God's blessing me. But God's hand isn't on them. You can see the way they live their life. Jesus is now going to address a critical issue. An absolute essential in our lives. Family of God, we all need to repent at times. There's not a single person sitting in this room who by day's end will not have something to repent of. And maybe it's just a thought. Maybe it's an idea. Maybe it's a wrong concept. Maybe it's some little thing that you just have struggled with. But absolutely every last one of us has issues with God. And so, as we turn our attention to the Word repentance and restoration. Would you pray? Father, we come. Lord, I come seeking Your face. Lord, we want to hear Your voice. We desire to know what Your Word says. And God, as we read it and as we study it, as we learn what it is that You, Jesus, have in mind for us this morning, God, would You keep us ever humble? Lord, break our hearts over our own issues. Cause us to look at our own selves first. Lord, help us to be holy as you are holy. Help us to live as you desire for us to live. Help us to be quick to forgive. Help us to keep short accounts of those things which are done to us. Lord, cause us to be always in your favor, Lord, because we have left our stuff in the lap of your grace. Bless us. Pray for us, Lord. We pray for each other this morning that we just take this to heart. Lord, live it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Luke 13. And there were present at that season, likely the season of the feasts, 
may have been the spring feast, which would have included Passover, may have been later in the year, we're not sure, those ten days of awe in October, the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur, but it appears to be centered around a season in which the Jewish people were being their most righteous. It's interesting how in our self-righteous attitudes, we can often miss some deep lessons. How often we can come to church and say, boy, I sure wish so-and-so was here to hear that. Amen? I can tell you all think that because you come to me, boy, I wish you know my wife was here or my husband was here or my aunt or my uncle or my cousin, my grandma, my grandpa was here because you just nailed them. It's for all of us. And what I preach to you, I preach to myself. What we learn, we learn together. It's easy when you think that you're better than other people, more righteous than other people, more holy than other It's easy to look past your own faults, to lay hold of other people's stuff. Until it was at that season that some told him about the Galileans. Now remember who the Galileans are. They were the hicks from the sticks from the north. These were the guys that weren't near Jerusalem. They hung out up there around the lake. They were on vacation most of the time fishing. And so the Jews in Jerusalem had kind of a bad attitude towards the Galileans. So much so that that famous statement, can anything good come from Nazareth, which was in the region of Galilee in the north? You see, we all have our prejudices, don't we? And so some told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and Jesus answered and said to them, Now, what's being pictured here, you have to imagine in your mind's eye, not being Jews. Most of you have never even uh, been on the Temple Mount, I would imagine. But if you were to go to the Temple at that time, there were several different areas that were considered holy. And so the Temple proper, the building on the Temple Mount that was the actual Temple, had in it the holy place, which is where the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the great menorah, the light of the world, was in that place. The priests ministered in there. Beyond it was the Holy of Holies, separated by a curtain, into which only the high priest could go. And in that place was the presence of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, the two cherubim, between which the glory of God dwelt, and on which the mercy seat, the blood would be offered of the sacrifice of the goat and of the lamb for the repentance of sin. But the sacrifices themselves took place in the courtyard. And in that courtyard, there were two principal instruments. One was a very large altar, some two meters tall, so a little over six feet, about 20 feet square, and on top of that, it was rather like a giant barbecue. The animals would be slaughtered in the courtyard, and then half offered on the altar and burned, and half given to the priests. And so what's being referenced is is a little tiny construction project that Pilate had going on. 
Because just adjacent to that temple compound, the courtyard would be the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. And on the edge of that was the Tower of Siloam. It was one of Pilate's pet projects. And there was a industrial accident that occurred. That great aqueduct project was being built down to the pool of Siloam in the city of David, about a half mile away, down below the Temple Mount. And so these poor workers were crushed on the Temple Mount in the courtyard wherein the sacrifices took place. And so their blood was spilled in the same place as those offered up to God. So you have to understand it from a Jewish perspective. (gasps) Horror of horrors! Galilean blood spilled on the Temple Mount? Are you kidding me? This was a major deal. The courtyard was defiled. I want you to see what Jesus thinks of self-righteousness next. He begins with a question, a question for each of us, a little sanctity quiz, if you will. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? Funny, we think the same thing, don't we, at times? Well, you know that happened to Bob because he was a crackhead. You know, of course Sue's got that problem. You know, she just stopped doing that with her boyfriend. I mean, naturally, that's why it would happen. We're kind of judgmental, aren't we? We kind of look at other people's things, and we have a tendency to make a snap judgment about where they are in the kingdom because, well, something happened to them. Must be God's judgment. God just getting even with them. Because they're real sinners. Jesus asked them a question. A very pointed question, I might add. To which the answer is, well, no, not really. But in their minds, the answer was absolutely, unequivocally, you betcha, that's why they died. The Jewish mindset, you better believe it, God fried them. Took them right out because they were evil Galileans and they were on the Temple Mount. They shouldn't have been there anyway. And of course, just smashed them flat as pancakes. Jesus then answers the question for them. Verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent you will likewise all perish. Were those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they are worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? (gasps) But I go to church every week. I go twice. I even pray once a week. 
And you mean I suffer? I'm a sinner? Yep. You're a sinner too. You're still sinners. Every last one of you. You know, Jesus, you're saved sinners. You're redeemed sinners. You're cleansed sinners. But you're still sinners. Saved by the marvelous, matchless grace of God. And so what Jesus does is said, look, guys, you got this all wrong. You think God's out to get everybody who doesn't see it your way. And that's not at all God's heart towards mankind. For He is willing that none should perish, but that All should come to repentance. He sees wretched, sin-encapsulated people just as wonderfully as He sees us who maybe are in ministry. Yes, there is a, a glorious wonder to being used of the Lord, but I am in no less need of the grace of God than the most wretched person on this planet. I need His forgiveness daily just as much as anyone else on this earth. And I need to repent of my stuff. And I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Isn't it interesting when you read this and you, 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 you just marvel at how narrow-minded and judgmental we can be as people at times. Amen? It's okay to say amen. To recognize your own stuff. To see your own problem. You know, and quite frankly, let's just be honest. We all have our own kind of little list of our favorite things you can't do and possibly be saved. Now, I want to tell you, that you have to be a has-been, washed-up, repentant sinner in order to be a saved sinner. Make no mistake about that. But all kinds of flavors of things are in people's lives over which they should be mourning. They should be concerned. And if the, the glory of God has fallen upon your life by salvation through grace because of faith, if that's happened to you, then you're still a sinner who has received a Savior, and thereby, as you repent, God cleanses and washes away the stain of that sin. But you can't point God in the chest and go, look, I don't believe this is a sin. Even though you said it is, I don't think it is. That's a problem. But for people to struggle, for people to have issues occasionally... For people to sometimes do dumb things, for people to even return to some stuff that they shouldn't return to, provided they repent. Notice what Jesus said. Provided there's conviction of the Holy Spirit, notice what Jesus said. Provided you have an understanding that what you did is wrong, notice what Jesus said. We all have the same issue. We all need Jesus daily. We need His forgiveness daily. In some of these 
poor workers that were killed, it would be real easy to say, well, the tower fell on them because they were heathens. The tower fell on them because they took Pilate's blood money. You see, the money for that aqueduct project came from the temple treasury. That's how they got it. History records that for us. So it was blood money. So God got them. He just took care of those rotten heathen sinners. That's what they were thinking. Be very careful. Remember our our journey as we were back in the beginning chapters of Luke's Gospel, chapter 6 and 7. Judge not, lest you in the same manner also be judged, for the measure wherein you judge your brother, so yourself will also be judged. you get it? That's why he said that. He said be real careful about measuring out your holiness based on you. Based on who you think you are. Because you know what? When we look at our lives, I I know I do this. I'm going to tell you straight up I do this occasionally. I kind of have that list of things that I find most abominable in this world. Probably top of the list is child molesters. People who molest children, I'm pretty much okay with God barbecuing. Just saying it. I admit it, it's a weakness. I don't have much tolerance for people who hurt children. Give them like two nanoseconds to repent. Go ahead, take them, Lord. That's just the way I think. And I will also tell you at the same breath that there are times when I'm wrong in thinking that. Sometimes I think it's perfectly okay for us to want God's justice. But we want His justice, not our retribution. Do you understand the difference? We want Him to convict them of that sin and for them to repent and be saved. If they won't do that, then vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. It's up to him. It's not up to me. But sometimes we want to do the repaying, don't we? We kind of rejoice a little bit too much in the fallen towers on those who perhaps have done the wrong thing, maybe even to you. And like... This story actually really should reveal to us our own hearts. Now, there were probably thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who died during that period of time that the Romans uh, stormed into Jerusalem. They were building stuff everywhere. When you go to Caesarea Maritima on the coast, north of Jerusalem, you'll see the Roman aqueduct that came from the springs that were up on Mount Hermon. From 18 miles away, this huge aqueduct is almost as wide as this room. 30, 40, 50 feet tall, all made out of stonework, arches, every 30 feet. They did that with slave labor. There are a lot of people that died in construction accidents during the Roman rule. It's easy for us to pick out just a handful And so we begin to think, well, I'm glad you killed those guys. I mean, they're real sinners. They're not like me. I mean, I'm perfect in my sinning. I mean, I only sin as much as somebody should really sin. Can I remind you of something? And you can look at it later. When you go to Galatians chapter 5, you all know that. The fruit of, you know, you look at those things. These are the works of the 
flesh, and these are the works of the Spirit. They're in that list of things that are the mark of the flesh. Yeah, there's the biggies. Oh, adultery, of course, they go to hell. Murderers? Oh, yeah, fry them, send them away. Thieves? Man, they take my stuff. Barbecue them, God. Can I remind you that the first list contains things like people who are filled with hate? Contentiousness. Envy. Vanity. People who party. They're all listed in the same sentence with commas. Not here's one list. These are the real bad sins, and these are the acceptable sins that Christians should commit. They're all sins from which we are supposed to have been redeemed. Amen? So before you get on your high horse about the really bad sinners, you might want to look and see if you've been contentious today. Maybe you're harboring something in your heart about your brother or your sister. Because in God's eyes, it's all sin. And he makes no distinction. Not in eternity. Their consequences are surely great for certain things. And they're greater for some than of the other. Some are internal, some are external. But every one of them needs the grace of God. And without the grace of God, you can be just as lost as a contentious person as you can as an adulterer. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have a tendency to think, well, you know, I'm just contentious, so I'm fine. That is not true. You're not okay as a contentious person. And your contentiousness is just as upsetting to God as someone else's drug abuse. Your anger and bitterness is just as much a problem as someone else's thievery. In an eternal sense. You can't get to heaven keeping any of it. It all needs the blood of the Lamb. That's why Jesus takes this position he does here in this passage. You see, from the Jewish perspective, those 18 guys deserve to die. Naturally, God would kill them. I mean, of course. Why wouldn't God take them out? After all, they were the most vile people that they could possibly think of that moment. Can I remind you of what Romans declares to us plainly in the third chapter? There is none righteous not one. Amen? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? You see what Jesus is getting at here? Be careful to stop that exclusive thinking that thinks, well, you know, I actually deserve to be saved. Why wouldn't God, I mean, after all, I'm awesome. Why wouldn't God save me? But, you know, they're vile and disgusting, so of course God won't save them. He'll kill them. You better keep an eye on that Romans chapter 3 string of verses. Notice the none, notice the all. Keep them in view for the rest of your life.
none righteous. In Christ, you have his righteousness. Your righteousness is still as filthy rags. That's what Scripture says. My righteousness. Our cumulative efforts cannot get us to heaven. When I step into the glories of God, as our brother Don went home to be with Jesus, he went to receive his reward. When he got to heaven, it wasn't, man, Don, you were just awesome. The way you served in church, that was wonderful. Welcome in, because you served in church. It was the blood of Christ that cleansed him from all unrighteousness, and that's the reason he stepped into glory. Hallelujah. You see, we need to repent, all of us. Wonderful passage in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 there, as Peter's delivering these sermons and he's speaking, and there's this marvelous work of the Spirit in the early church. It says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Amen? You you see, that's really what happens in our lives. And so Jesus says to them, look, you're all guilty. Every last one of you. You all need to repent. Not just those poor people who got crushed underneath those boulders. He picks up now, and it seems like these things are not associated. We're going to take down through verse 13 today. And the next thing we see uh, really is, is a picture of national repentance. And I, and I want you to notice how the Lord sets these things up. The Lord draws this conclusion to his warning. And, and it, it really isn't so much a conclusion as it is an illustration, but it's a conclusion being in it's a, a thought. And so in verse 6, and he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Now, if you plant trees, fruit trees specifically, your hope is at some point in time they're going to produce fruit. Amen? Otherwise, we call those water suckers. And up here, that gets really expensive really fast. You're out there watering your trees, and there's no fruit. And so you get out there, you hack the puppies down. Amen? Who wants a fruitless fruit tree? Not me. I want fruit. That's why I planted fruit trees going to make the same exact profitable profitable analogy for us here. Notice what he says. He goes on in verse 7. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up ground? Most of you who have studied God's Word with us here in this church, you know what I'm about to say. The fig tree is a picture of national Israel. He's saying, look, you Jewish whiners and complainers talking about what was going on in the Temple Mount, you guys ain't so spectacular yourself. You got some issues. Nobody's ever been blessed like you've been blessed with the presence of God, with the prophets of God, with the princes, the priests. You've had it all. You've had more work of God in your national existence than all the other peoples on the earth combined. And yet, no fruit. But he answered and said to him, Sir, let us alone this year until I dig around it and fertilize it. He said, Look, I'm going to give you some more time. I'm going to let you dig up a little bit more. And I would remind you that the early church was made up of who? Jews. 
almost exclusively Jews. And if it bears fruit, well, if not, after that, you can cut it down. And so Jesus kind of illustrates this whole concept here for us. Normally fruit trees kind of squeeze their existence out of the dirt and they they pull in as much water as they possibly can. And if there's sufficient water and nutrients in the soil, then they'll produce figs. But in this case, there had been someone tending this tree. That's the sure way to make sure it gets enough water, gets enough fertilizer, gets pruned when it needs it. God himself had been tending the tree. And yet the tree was still fruitless. Why? Religious blindness. Thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. Failing to see their own issues. Believing everyone else in the entire world was worse than them, so they were fine. Now do you get the picture? You you see, that's what they were actually saying. They're saying, look, there's the temple. There's the temple mount. Over here is the Sanhedrin. I mean, look at this building. This thing's awesome. This is the only religious legal court in the entire world, and we have it. I mean, have you been inside of the holy place? You looked in there to see. There it is, the twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes of the children of it. You go in the door, and that's us. And then there, before you get to the curtain, those are our Jewish prayers being offered up before God so that we can be a holy people. And over on this side, look at that six and a half foot tall menorah that weighs probably 200 pounds, solid gold, got candles in it burning every day because the light of the world's in us. We can get the same way, can't we? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got the grace of God in my life. I'm awesome. I'm spectacular. I'm a Jesus freaking you're not. I'm going to heaven. We can get that way, can't we? Start thinking we're more holy than we really are. Start saying, look, you know, I mean, we've got, I mean, we, have you been inside our church? We got high definition television. We got stuff. We got all kinds of cool things. We got our own trailer. Got a website, a logo. We can start thinking we're more holy than we really are. We can look at us, well, you know, we must be okay with God. Look how He's blessed us. Now I will tell you, there's a direct link between God's blessings and our obedience, to be sure. Scripture teaches that. But never mistake that behind that is a bunch of failed human beings who desperately need the grace of God every day. No matter how wonderful it looks on the outside... No matter how crazy it seems to us that, you know, we have all these wonderful blessings, we still need Jesus. And we need to repent of our own individual sin. 
why Paul, as he authored the book of Romans, reminded his fellow countrymen. He says, look, man, we're just simply more responsible. He even in chapter 9 said, I wish that I were accursed myself. Because if you look at what we've received, we've received the law, we've received all, we had the prophets, we got the Torah and the Tanakh, we have the Old Testament prophets, we have the first five books of Moses, we knew about the creation account, we knew about God's early grace, we knew about all these things. And yet we couldn't tell when Jesus came. You can get really religious and still miss the grace of God. And you can get really judgmental and be outside of His grace. You see, the fig tree was a flop. It was a failure. And if you look at it, you, you, you kind of make a couple of quick analogies in, in seeing this. Look, the owner was God. Amen? The whole earth, everything on it, the sheep, the cattle, and the thousand hills, the gold and silver, and everything, it all belongs to the Lord. So the whole earth is His. And when Jesus came, that's why He uses the... Th- look, for three years... You guys have watched me heal those who are blind. You've seen the lame walk. You've seen the demon possessed set free. You've seen multitudes taken care of and provided for. You've had all these things happen to you, and you still don't get it. You can have everything and miss it all. And he's basically saying, look, you guys run borrowed time. You're wasted farmland. And of course, we know from the history of the Jewish people that they were in fact on borrowed time. And so from A.D. 135 until March 14, 1948, they spent nearly 2,000 years without a country. 2,000 years without a common language. Russian Jews spoke predominantly Russian. Polish Jews spoke Polish. Jews in America spoke English. It wasn't until they were regathered together into the one nation that is now Israel that they even spoke the same language again. And so God says, look, I sent Jesus to you first, and it was worthless. But... He still has a plan. And he's coming back to make sure that that promise is kept. And there is revival going on right now in Israel in certain circles. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But the fig tree hasn't borne a whole lot of fruit to this day. And so finally... One last thing that seems really disassociated when you think about it. And and again, I would just simply remind you of the truth that's contained here in this last couple of verses. What's the answer? The answer for the Jew is Jesus. The answer for the Gentile is Jesus. The answer for the world is Jesus. It's not more church. It's more Jesus. It's not certain denominations. It's Jesus. Do you get the picture? Notice what the Lord does. Seems like it's completely disassociated from everything else that He's just said. 
but I will show you that it's not, and I believe you'll see it. And now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, I think Jesus did this intentionally, and we're going to see that in a moment, very frequently, just to kind of twist and tweak the Jewish religious leadership a little bit. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity from 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her immediately. She was made straight and glorified God. Jesus did not come for the sake of religion. Jesus came for relationship and restoration. He didn't come to start a world religion as we know it. The result is, is that we call a Christian worldview the Christian religion, but in fact that's not actually taught in Scripture. Religion is man's attempt to quantify things so that we can discuss and describe what happens in church. But Jesus didn't come for the sake of religion. Matter of fact, he's in a religious place, and he's going to go against the religion for the sake of the relationship. See these few things as we wrap up this morning. And remember that Jesus declared plainly in Matthew chapter 18, I have come to seek and save that which is lost. Amen? He's not looking for people to think they got it all together. He's looking for people who know they're lost. He came to fix the broken. He came to fix the downcast. He came to touch the hurting. He came to meet needs. He didn't come to start a religion. The time this opposition takes place, uh, forth in its entirety is a time when Jesus is being radically persecuted. Now I want you to see a couple of things as we wrap up. We have recorded for us several instances, one in John's Gospel, one in Matthew's Gospel, and this one here, where Jesus does exactly what he shouldn't do on the Sabbath. I actually like that. And here's why. Because when you think about it, in John's Gospel, Jesus heals this crippled man at the pool of Bethsaida. And then that wasn't enough, so he told the man to pick up his bed and walk. You weren't allowed to carry a burden on the Sabbath day. And so not only does Jesus heal him on the Sabbath, he says, hey, take up your bed and go for a stroll. Freak people out. Go carry your burden, because you've been set free from that burden. Go show them what it's like to be set free from that burden. Carry it somewhere and put it back in your house where it belongs. In Matthew's Gospel, remember that the disciples are walking through a cornfield and they're plucking corn, which was perfectly legal on every day except the Sabbath. Amen? Couldn't do it on the Sabbath. For some unknown reason, I guess you weren't allowed to be hungry on Saturday. Just supernaturally, your hunger went away. And so the disciples were gleaning as they went through the field. And so in doing that, you know what he does next? He says, not only do I not care that my disciples were picking corn, I'm going to heal the guy with the withered hand. He does that on the same Sabbath. Jesus was always messing with organized religion. 
I think, personally, that in the sense that a lot of the world thinks about it, the Lord hates organized religion because it drives people from Christ. It pushes people away from Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost, not church. Now, church is a good place for us to learn about Jesus, amen? And so in that sense, I think he loves the church. But the whole religious aspect of it, where people get caught up in, well, you know, we do it, and maybe we do it, look at how we prosper, look how we don't prosper. I don't think the Lord really appreciates that. And then in our story, this woman who's been bent over for 18 years. For those of you who have never had back problems, you can't appreciate truly how horrible this is. But when you can't straighten up, when you can't even raise yourself up, someone has to help you stand straight up, it's pretty all-encompassing in how it affects your life. And in this case, the, the words used here means to be bent doubly. That means we say doubled over. You know, like you got a real strong and you double over. This is what this term meant. This woman had never been able to stand up straight and see a sunset or a sunrise for 18 years. She had never gazed into the face of her husband for 18 years. She had never been able to stand up and look someone face to face in a conversation. She was bent over double for 18 years. You know what? Jesus doesn't care that it's Sabbath. He says, you know what really matters is this poor woman's been suffering. I'm going to set her free right now. And I don't care what day it is. I just care that she's whole. I don't care what she did to get there. You see how it ties in? The Jewish people were probably thinking, well, she deserves to be doubled over. The reason she's doubled over, no doubt she's got some secret sin in her life. If another person comes to me and tells me that someone's got secret sin, and that's why I'm going to just don't do it. We're going to have to go outside. Because I'll need to talk with my hands and stuff way up in the air. It's like, what are you doing? We don't want to do that, folks. The next person that comes to me, well, you know, they've got spiritual adultery, or they've got spiritual drunkenness, or they've got spiritual this, or spirit... Do not tell me that. Because the moment you say that, the only reason you would even mention it is because you think you yourself are sinless. Because if that's your criteria, everybody in here has got spiritual something going on, Okay? For all have sinned. Amen? So what does Jesus do? He sets her free. She just simply walks up and says, I believe, I receive. And she's healed. She's set free. She's loosed from those chains. So all the religious banter, Jesus really didn't care about it all that much. He says, look, what matters is that you repent of whatever your stuff is. And I repent of my stuff. And we repent of our corporate stuff. And national Israel repents of their stuff. And this one woman repents of her stuff. We repent 
were restored. It's that simple. God's not waiting to take your life. God's not thinking evil of you. He wants the very best for each of us. And so as we realize that, puts us all in the same boat. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We're all sinners. I desperately need His grace. You need His grace. We walk around as very gracious people, merciful people, forgiving people, kind people, tender people, gentle people. We, we have those gifts, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, and all the stuff that comes underneath it is working in our lives because we ourselves are needy. And because we have need and we admit the need, God gives us what we have need of according to His great riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If you need more mercy, you get it. If you need more forgiveness, you get it. If you need less bitterness, He takes it. You get the picture. You see, Jesus was really saying, look, I'm the answer. The stuff isn't the answer. I'm the answer. So He gave her that touch she needed. She was set free from that bondage. And so, each of us needs to repent. Each of us needs that restoration. And when you have it, go share it with other people. Because we're all in the same boat. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we pray that you would bless us, God, with your presence in our lives. We pray, Lord, that... You would work in us to accomplish your perfect plan and pleasure. God, we are grateful to you for your work of restoration. Thank you for giving us the ability to to understand what you want from us and so that we can repent and get squared away with you. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for this time in your word this morning. Pray that you'd help us to remember and to live out the principles that are from you. We bless you. We praise you. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.